Welcome to Index for Continuance. I'm here with Zach. Hello. Uh, we're doing a little intro for this episode. I think this is a really, really good one. Uh, yeah. It's about publicity and marketing. I think it's a great one for writers and for small presses. We learned a lot. Uh, I was humbled by my learning. Mm-hmm. And maybe you will be too. Uh, we're, we talked to Jeremy Wang Iverson and Samara Rafer, and we introduced them a little more in the episode. But for now, we'll just give some introductory ideas and some terms that might help you follow the discussion to come. I want to say we start out, we start out kind of in the weeds on this one. We yeah. get really nitty gritty <laughs> really fast, and we stay there for a minute. Um, and that was, we like that kind I of think- thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I I felt like hesitant about it at first, but it was in the moment the interesting thing, and then it it weirdly like frames the rest of the conversation in the context of just the the strangeness and I mean by strange it's like not strange at all, but like the really particular conditions of the book market and how it works, how books reach readers through um, largely digital selling channels. And yeah, beginning beginning where we do, I think, underscores that in, in an interesting way, because what we're trying to, I think, make sense of is just like, what is, what is book marketing? Like, what is book publicity? In this day and age, uh, obviously, we're, our focus is on how it works for small presses. And I think having the context of the like vast <laughs> simple but like quite vast like networked like technicality um, of how uh, how books just like travel from A to B um, in the contemporary market is like I feel like you can't do small press book publicity and you know in Jeremy and Samara's cases like they're either doing it I mean Jeremy's case um, like pretty freelance and with like a lot of small press titles kind of like one-on-one and and Samara is working with university press I feel like you can't you can't just like execute the operations of that without having a pretty like nuanced understanding of some of that technicality so um yeah I uh I feel like this isn't like a caveat but it does feel good to acknowledge that we sort we, yeah we begin we begin way down there yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's a caveat at all because I I think it's great but also if you if that's not the exact subject that interests you most don't worry we're going to get into all of the larger questions of publicity too but i also think it's so as we were talking about before this just like it's fascinating and um humbling or just like requires attention that that this work needs a lot of technical knowledge and requires this these like technical skills and it's arts and humanities people were like what do we do in our field suddenly to operate in them and do that work requires this kind of technical execution that changes you know it's Mm -hmm. it's like changing rapidly so that if you learned one system 10 or 20 years ago it's not that's not the system now you know for sure yeah so this is i think this conversation is a good way to learn some of that shit and maybe figure out that you need to learn more of it. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my God, I have no idea what I'm doing. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. And then my other, I had another thought because I was re-listening to this episode and I was like, oh, I think I stole my friend's joke. Um, <laughs> so I, it made me, give me occasion to reflect about collaboration. Just thinking like working in small presses, working in these really 
collaborative structures where you're, you're talking to people all the time. You're working closely with authors. You're working like, you know, Zach and I, we work really closely together. And, you know, I've been fortunate in all of my time in publishing to have like amazing colleagues and just be talking to them both about all of the specifics and technicalities stuff and then about all of the big ideas of what we were trying to do what a book was trying to do which means your ideas aren't personal they're not individual like you don't remember who said what or whose joke was whose or who (laughs) i was had occasion to recently remember uh, uh, some books that an author i worked with you know over 10 years ago and i couldn't really even remember if I edited that book or my colleague did, you know, because it was all happening in close proximity and we were talking so much about all those things. So maybe notes toward a future conversation on Mm -hmm. collaboration and kind of what it looks like and also a confession that I can no longer tell whose brain I have and it might be also made up of Carol Pagel's brain. That's right, yeah. And that sometimes sometimes you're stealing someone's line. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, I wonder, you know, it, uh, in what, in what situations is it, is it an honor <laughs> to have your line stolen? And is there, is there a potential reframing <laughs> of line stealing? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That'll help with this. As ever, we encourage you to write in. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Explain it to us. Please help. <laughs> <laughs> we also have, we have our list of terms. We do. For the ongoing forever index. For our index of uh, publishing small press terms, mm-hmm. Zach is going to start us off. That's right. Kick it off. Uh, With acquisitions, editorial production as one term all in a pile. Yeah. 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 Football. Football. Kickoff football style. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, acquisitions and uh, acquisitions in a, uh, in a in a publishing context having to do with just getting work to publish right and obviously like every press does this i think a little bit differently or you know maybe we could say that there are sort of like known known forms that acquisitions takes amongst different kinds of presses whether that is through um, open reading periods or uh, contests for sure more like direct solicitation or querying from authors or uh, uh Agents, we don't work with many agents on the small press level, but I think that depending on the context in which you're referring to acquisitions, I think the the type of press does, you know, does kind of dictate what acquisitions can look like. Certainly, if we're thinking about like big five imprints, those are, you know, I think most of the time sort of uh, agent or agency brokered transactions that result in a manuscript being accepted by an editor at a press to then go and develop it into a book. Um, university press level, things can look a little bit different. Um, I think sometimes a little more similar to how uh, small press processes go with the exception of maybe academic book acquisitions, right? Um, editors at those presses often have like their very sort of like specialty subjects that they're acquiring in. And, uh, you know, not they do open reading periods, right? But like it's it's a different scene from what, what we think about when we're thinking about acquisitions on the, the like small literary press side where, yeah, it's often, um, I guess the things I said before, but yeah, I think open reading periods, um, I feel like open reading periods are the future. <laughs> um, but we don't have to talk about the contest model right now. Um, so yeah, acquisitions, just how how do books come in 
to uh, to be edited and then begin the stages of you know processing from from manuscript to physical object. That part, right, sort of after acquisitions is um, editorial production, developmental editing. That's just development of the manuscript along the way, uh, and that includes everything from like thinking about what are the ideas, what is the shape of this, right? Thinking about the content um, in terms of material. More, I think, technical levels get at things like line editing, copy editing, actually like preparing um, the object to go to print, and then you know, printing. Printing is the last phase of production, right? Mm -hmm. um, certainly design is wrapped up in there. So basically we wanted to just, I think, draw attention to acquisitions as sort of like where editing begins, where book production begins um, it, from a, a press perspective. Yeah. I mean, it's not necessarily an obvious word for that if you hadn't <laughs> previously heard it. Yes. be like that when people are reading manuscripts or thinking about what book to publish, all of that is called acquisitions regardless um, of the f actual form that it takes yeah sometimes it's scavenging yeah or uh catching <laughs> or kicking off <laughs> sorry our next term is one you can pronounce any way you want nice we talk about arcs and galleys in the conversation with jeremy and samara and arcs you might say arcs and we we don't judge you do people say arcs some people say arcs that's cool and i don't I think it's welcome. Does anyone say Arcees? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. But you heard it here first. <laughs> nice. ARCs, Advanced Review Copies. Uh, it's an acronym for that. And so those are, and it's often used interchangeably with galleys. Technically, they do have two different meanings, but it's also fine to just say those things interchangeably. Um, people will not be confused what you're talking about. Um, anytime you get a copy of a book or what will become a book, for a publicity purpose, like for review or um, to consider buying for your bookstore, any of those things for consideration for a prize when the book hasn't come out yet, those are ARCs. So advanced review copies that are mailed out. And in this day and age, they might be digital. That's right. Um, yep. But I think the industry still has a fondness for the, for the physical ARC or galley. So a galley is technically like the first um, page proofs that come from, I guess, the compositor the old term, the book designer. So that's why some, when you see arcs or galleys, when you see something that calls itself an advanced review copy, it might also say uncorrected proofs. So that means it's, it obviously has been edited, it has been laid out, but it may still be pending some round of proofreading changes, maybe a lot of proofreading changes, maybe just like a few, in many cases, arcs are actually totally identical to the final text of the book. They are the text that's going to be published. It's just that they are a copy that's going out earlier for publicity purposes. So mm. they usually come out, well, Jeremy and Samara will talk about this in relation to different sizes of presses. I was going to say three to six months before the book comes out, but it's true that for really big books, you might see them even further in advance than that. So yeah, those are arcs and galleys. Sometimes they look like a finished book. Sometimes they're like a spiral bound thing or a pile. Um, in, when I was just a young child in publishing. <laughs> they your, used, your voice just changed. They used cool. to just be like a pile of pages. <laughs> Were they bound or secured in any way? We or? went. We might go to our local um, copy shop, which is Paradise Copies in Northampton, yeah, um, nice. Massachusetts. I recommend it highly. Uh, and they might have spiral bound them for us. But cool. Some just some 
Spawn Con. The forms of the book are uh, en- endlessly fascinating. Um, I attempted to say before, what was it? All galleys are arcs, but not all arcs are galleys. A galley can become an arc if you send it out, like if you give it to someone to review. That's so right. that's why for if you're reviewing a book, you are often, the arc will tell you not to... Um, publish your review without checking your quotations against the final copy of the book. So that's in case there was any kind of substantive change to the text. They want you to confirm um, the quotation that will appear in your review against the final text of the book. That's cool. And I, and I was thinking about uh, this is another thing you can correct me on if it's wrong, but it feels like the advanced review copy refers to like timing in relation yes. to publication, whereas galley refers to like point in the production process yes. a little more directly. Yeah. A galley suggest yes. And I think it's just like, that's a term from the past that we like using. Yeah. It is interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, names will not be named, but I feel I feel interested in which term gets used and in which contexts. And yeah. The, the many valences to that. But that's an essay for a different time. This is a podcast about... In 2023. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's 2023. It's, <laughs> it's definitely still 2023. Yeah. Galley yeah. comes from the French galley. Oh, my God. I just learned from a book that's right next to us. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Should we say what that book is? Oh, yeah. We so also we recommend this book. We might quote it again later. What Editors Do. Editor, edited by, <laughs> by Peter Ginna. Subtitled is The Art, Craft, and Business of Book Editing. And yeah. it is a, it's a great resource. So uh, we recommend that if you're looking for, you know, so it's, a set of essays by a whole bunch of different industry folks, mm-hmm. um, specifically about different kinds of editing and stages of editing and, and ways of approaching the work of editing. So that's a good, it's a good one. And that's where I learned that galley cool. from the French. Galley. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I feel, I feel really fancy now. Um, okay. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about another uh, word that I don't think came from the French, but uh, blurb. Blurb. <laughs> Doesn't sound very French. Um, we talk about blurbs in this episode. Uh, we also talk about blurbers and blurbists. But essentially the blurb being the bit of endorsement language that another author or person or party uh, offers to a book that's being published. Um, these appear typically, though they can appear in a lot of places, but I think maybe the main place they appear is usually on the back of the physical book itself, um, sometimes on like the inside of a dust jacket. Um, if a French flap, a French <laughs> flap. What's the French word for a French flap? I don't know. All right, we'll find. <laughs> um, if a book, I've seen this too, where like if a book has had many, many blurbs, lots of praise, even. Um, but maybe that has more to do with like receptive praise rather than like or pre-publication blurbage, um, you'll have that page on the inside sometimes that's like praise for mm-hmm. whatever, and there's just cascading endorsements from, um, in this case, maybe not necessarily other authors, but in that case, reviewers. So the people who are often providing blurbs, right, like in my understanding, right, if we're talking about a literary book, right, of fiction or poetry or nonfiction, these are typically other writers of that type of material. Absolutely. Um, And blurbs serve a really interesting purpose, I feel, uh, in the sort of, like, the the construction of the book as uh, an object and as content, because 
um, sometimes, right? I mean, I think the, the, the sort of base idea is that like the blurb will sort of help to sell the book a little bit um, by just sort of signaling what? Quality, right? Well, this person who's like quote unquote good thinks this is also quote unquote good, right? And, uh, you know, I know for myself, like, I mean, that's maybe like the first level of it, but then I think, you know, it, sometimes these can also be sort of like stylistic signals, mm-hmm. right? Like depending um, if a certain kind of writer is blurbing a certain kind of book that might create at least the suggestion that um, these two are maybe of a certain kind or could be in conversation. So I, I think blurbs are pretty fascinating in their sort of like signaling of content or mm-hmm. uh, almost as like, a, a, I don't know, a, an aspect of the, the menu <laughs> or something. Um, but then I also think they're really fascinating as we get into you know, on the episode, thinking more about like the actual process by which blurbs are uh, sought out, acquired, and applied, right? Yeah. And, and there are some weird, I feel like weird dimensions to this that, you know, they're just weird. They're like interesting. They are dynamics, I feel like, that mirror a lot of the rest of publishing, right? I feel like this sort of little blurb uh blurb arms race is how i think samara yep, calls that's it that's good yeah i've heard it referred to as an industrial complex mm-hmm. right i mean these are all really uh exciting terms uh for uh statehood but i think yeah i mean we'll, we won't spoil the conversation but i think that think like blurbs offer um in addition to just like I think tools for the reader potentially are also a really interesting kind of like site of a lot of um, like contemporary publishing issues, anxieties, uh, and um, I don't know if there are solutions in there, but maybe. We'll find out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we should, I think we all should solve it. I think the, the solution is probably no more blurbs, but no one's well, going to do that. Here's so. the thing. I wondered, I was wondering, I was thinking about this, what could stand in for a blurb? Or to reframe that, like, what else could be a blurb? Yeah, I don't know. Can a sandwich be a blurb? Yes. Yes. Okay, see, this is great. <laughs> so, like, I think this is a good line of thinking <laughs> to just, like, keep exploring. Yeah. So it could be when I first started working in publishing, I was confused about what what was a blurb versus what was jacket copy like the descriptive text that's on the back of the book which is often written by the publisher or the author or some combination thereof versus the blurb which always comes from hopefully like a more famous writer or a writer famous in a comparable or aspirational way (laughs) to the the book in front of you so yeah a blurb is is that one thing but sometimes people say blurb for the jacket copy too it's true yeah and there are because it's kind of blurby it's also like advertising. Totally. Right. Signals, right? We'll move on from this one, but I'll just mention that I, you know, like blurbs came up at least for me recently in the publishing class that I teach and students were really interested in the idea of like the anti-blurb. Which, oh, like a negative blurb? Yeah. You know, like... I've oh, received... Some, no, not as negative, an author, but... Yeah. Oh yeah. As a publisher, sometimes... Someone bothered to write a negative blurb and send it back, which mm-hmm. is bold. It's bold. And yeah. I feel like is maybe a gift. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the idea that, like, the blurb... If we're thinking about how to reframe or, like, blurb, blurb futures, 
this is maybe, other than sandwiches, an aspect of it, right? Is that there are maybe ways of including information in the blurb spot that becomes a kind of signal, but through like a negative way. Whether that's like a negative, sort of a negative endorsement. Mm -hmm. Like, this book sucked, you know? I'd be like, cool, why'd you put that on there? Depends who said it, you know what I mean? There are a lot of like nuances to that. Um, But also just negative in that like maybe does not relate back at all to the object of the book. I would like a blurb that was like, if you didn't like X book, you will like Y book. That's pretty good, yeah. (laughs) Because that would be effective for me, but... I don't think that's what you mean exactly. <laughs> I, I don't know what I mean, to be honest. I'm, I'm interested in just, like, I think exploring what else blurbs could be. And that, honestly, I think maybe that doesn't happen because that's almost, that's, like, more specific. Yeah. I feel like dislikes are much more specific things than likes. Yeah. I will say about blurbs, one thing we could say, too, is, of course, they are one of the parts of the process process that is most nerve-wracking and stressful for the writer Mm -hmm. because it means these requests, you know, for someone to read your book and write an endorsement of it. And it's best if you can, it's helpful to the book, you know, if that's someone who is well-established, you're asking for their time, et cetera. So they do involve a lot of stress for writers. They also don't work like they used to. Like it used to be like you get a blurb that would like sail your book on through. You know, like Mm -hmm. if you got a really good blurb from someone really you know, well-established and respected, like, that would really matter. And I don't think that's as true anymore. Like, everything, things like that don't totally work in the same way, but we still keep going through the, mm-hmm. <laughs> going through the motions. So, and one question people often ask is, like, do writers read every book they blurb? No, they do not. Right. Some people do, and some people don't. And that's, how it is <laughs> we can also you know and in the description i feel like for this episode we can like cite the couple of like articles that oh yeah we, we recorded this at the time that that vogue article about this exact thing was, oh yeah like, or happening. esquire or land oh, they were that's like that's right yeah one of the ones i listen, think it was esquire listen we're gonna find out <laughs> vogue i don't know what magazines are that's part of my problem it was in cosmo it was in the national Enquirer. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh our next term is comps or comp titles. And Jeremy and Smear are going to talk about this in, in a really knowledgeable way about the industry, but we can just introduce it to say that that's titles that you refer to when pitching a book, you know, that you're comparing it to specifically in terms of like sales or um, subgenre, right? Like, or in terms of like how it will perform, how it will do. So they also are aspirational, right? Like you're trying to, you're, you, the comps you select for a book should give a sense that it will perform really well. As Jeremy and Smart discuss, you also want to be realistic because um, if your comps are too like wildly incongruous, they don't work, right? And they um, might lead to your book being treated in a way that doesn't serve it. So comps, you will, if you've written book proposals or um, worked with an agent, you might have come up with comps at that point, like as part of your proposal, or you and your agent might have come up with comps, or you might have pitched it to an agent based on some comps you came up with. So that's one one stage at which that happens, and then it's also going to happen in the publicity and marketing stage as the book goes out into the world, into booksellers, and, and you're kind of telling them how to 
how to treat this book, like, and what kind of scale of success it could have and in what terms, right? Is this a really exciting original literary book that's going to win the big literary prizes? Is this like an awesome page turner? Is this like the best werewolf erotica? Is it, <laughs> you know, is it an unputdownable oh, yeah. force of potato cooking? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna get into all that. There's a natural critique of comps that you may have thought of, maybe thinking of now, which is, of course, that they have a sort of conservative mm-hmm. effect, right? Like. If you're comparing your books to things, particularly in commercial terms, in terms of like sales, like that's gonna, you know, like, well, what if you wrote a really fucking cool book that's not gonna necessarily gonna sell all that many copies or not right away? It's about a long burn, you know, so there, and also like, it's about recognizability when one thing we might want from art is the new. <laughs> like, yeah. So they do, you know, you'll hear critiques of how many things in publishing work to essentially kind of be conservative and look to reproduce certain kinds of art as products rather than looking to receive new artwork in its own terms. Which is so, it's so interesting, right? And I feel like that's a really great segue to our next term, which is metadata and the ways in which metadata has certain values to it and my values I literally mean like values in a formula right and those values have to be plugged in in recognizable ways for the metadata to be useful and that has a ton of consequence when it comes to how and where and like how like how clearly and visibly uh, basically a book appears as a product within a product listing on like an e-commerce site or even in a database that a bookstore might use right to purchase the book um, to stock on the shelf. Um, metadata is really important and it, it's so, you know, it's interesting to think about certain, certain like structures of book selling that like on the one hand exist to like, just like facilitate, right? But how embedded in those processes of f- facilitation, there are these like really like nuanced, like subtle little details that kind of have like massive consequences right one of which being yeah that like (laughs) your comps you know are maybe inherently a little bit um conservative and like operate on the assumption that there's anything like this which there probably is but i don't Mm -hmm. know i like to think i live in a world where not everything has been imagined yet (laughs) or at least executed yet and so for metadata right what is metadata it's data about data is kind of the simplest definition that I've uh, gotten from people I know who are smarter than me and work at libraries. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is essentially the, the, the data about an object, in this case, a book, that other machines will then use to categorize and sort and um, place, uh, find. An aspect of metadata that we talk about, and we talk about a few different ones, but one that we... I think is of particular consequence are the BISAC codes. Oh, yeah. BISAC, which stands for uh, just B-I-S-A-C, right? Um, Book Industry Standards and Communications. (laughs) Um, These are codes that um, are used in, I think, like, I don't want to say like all the databases, but many of them to essentially signal the content of a text. Um, And then, of course various machines rely on this to then put like objects together, right? Um, We don't really see these as consumers. I mean, you can go find them like you can go find an ISBN, 
but you're not gonna it's not like a human readable um, piece of information right it's for a machine to use uh, the other maybe or maybe there's like a good analogy for this or like you know a type of uh, metadata that I think maybe more pe people are more familiar with is the idea of like SEO data, like the search engine optimization, the sort of like back end code bits of a web page that a search engine uses, right? But that people sometimes see. And, uh, you know, we talk about, we talk a little bit about the sort of, um, you know, funny like cottage garbage industry of like <laughs> SEO writing, right? That is like, totally like it's like a metadata informed practice but all to say yeah metadata is like you know i mean i know we're talking about like book marketing and one probably often or at least i often think that like yeah marketing a book has to do with like generating excitement on the front end for a human but it's like actually like there's maybe a lot more of it sometimes that has to do with uh knowing how to sort of like technically input the right values for a machine to then be able to you know, put put the book in a place that you want it to be, um, and to Hillary's I guess opening point right about that the ways in which those systems are changing, um, and the technical knowledge that's required. It's yeah, it's pretty wild. I mean, you know, I feel like I yeah, I also learned a ton <laughs> talking yeah. about this stuff. It makes me sad. Like this is some Skynet shit. Like yeah. This is the machines are telling us what books to read, guys. Um, well, for sure, right? And um, I think that that's what that's what gets like it gets creepy about it. And this is like a larger thing that just relates to a lot of I think just like technology anxiety at all, right? Where it's like, oh man, this is just how it is now, and it's like, mm -hmm. who fucking made it that way? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like this is a really interesting. Uh, we like we don't have to we don't talk about AI <laughs> in this episode, but like I think that these these types of like structures that characterize the work of book marketing and publicity are like so easily like connectable and um anal analogous analogous mm -hmm. i never know which g sound to make um Try and all. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, <laughs> analogous to are uh just like other just like the rest of the economy right yeah. and like the rest of this stuff is how it's been structured right around um you know attention economies or attention attention interfaces etc okay yeah. sorry <laughs> no that's great it's made me really think about you know if a book is a really really interactive thing labeling it by subject matter mm -hmm. according to some internet categories is really not a way of serving like it is not a one it's not a one word no. version of its subject matter that's not a great way to summarize it or serve it so um, but we can't like, change that. Right. And it's not like, I mean, going, just going back to the, like, the BISAC codes, right? It's not like there are an unlimited amount of those. No. You know? Like, no. They're just... And they don't represent your experience. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. As a werewolf, I do not <laughs> see <laughs> my experience. Hot werewolf. Um, <laughs> I would like to... Reflect on all of you who learned that word from Edward Snowden, like me, metadata. Metadata. And That's everything cool. we've learned along the way. <laughs> metadata. Uh, the next, our next term is sales reps. And this is actually, this nice. is a term that people in small presses, like, we don't know a lot about because sales reps are like a big thing we don't have. Like, you know, they, 
as you might expect, sort of an intermediary role representing, um, you know, the front list for publishers and distributors going out and talking to book buyers and kind of doing that intermediary, intermediary work of highlighting titles on the front list, pitching them, knowing how to talk about them and kind of, you know, representing the work uh, to get those sales. So um, small presses mostly, we just don't have sales reps because we're too small and our distributors are too small. But they are a big part of the industry, as the conversation will will touch on. I only only ever had one meeting with sales reps, and I want <laughs> I just want to paint a little picture, which was like I went with a colleague. We were both in our women in our twenties. We were new to this meeting, but but you know we did a good job. We're like we knew what we had to do, but what we didn't know is that there wasn't like a suite that was at the hotel or a conference room. So we ended up having the meeting in a playroom. <laughs> And it was like us sitting in these teeny tiny chairs for children, and oh, then all man. the sales reps who were all middle-aged guys sitting on the floor among all these toys. Uh, I thought you were gonna say they had their own chairs brought in. <laughs> no, there were no chairs. <laughs> like, so we just sat in chairs for um, babies, and uh, they all sat on the floor, and we tried to seem authoritative, even though we were very, very new to our job, and yeah. didn't. So that's those are sales reps. The people sitting on the mm-hmm. floor with the toys are sales reps. And if you're in a chair, you work but for the publisher. But it's just a chair say, for though, babies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love that. That's horrible. But also, <laughs> I mean, it's hilarious. But also, you know, I mean, in that like configuration, it was story time. It was story time. And you were telling them the story. Yeah, I don't so, know. I would might have worn a different outfit had I known. <laughs> About our kind of physical arrangement, but sure, yeah. Listen, that's got why, the job done. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's why I wear um, I wear a, a full body jumpsuit at all times. Yeah, you just never know what you're that would have worked. Into. It would have worked better. Um, so, <laughs> if any of those sales reps are listening, hello, I have a full size chair now. <laughs> <laughs> so deal. <laughs> Uh, and hey guys, uh, we have just one more term. Thanks, thanks for listening, dudes. <laughs> just guessing. Um, yeah, uh, final term is trade, which uh, this is a term used in publishing to uh, just refer to. You may have heard the the phrase trade paperback, right? Um, and all trade means in literary publishing is meant for a general audience. So, in other words, just like not scholarly not textbooks not academic not specialized Mm -hmm. yeah trade trade literature uh but it is i mean to me and we were talking about this before right like it's sort of confusing because i feel like outside of that like a like a trade term right um trade would imply specialty for the trade like right yeah in most things, if there's a like a trade magazine, it's for the people who work in that industry. Right. Whereas in publishing, it means the opposite. Like, it's like for everyone. Right. And not like for, for, for guns. Yeah. Or for cars. Yeah, like a trade magazine and like bow hunting mm-hmm. is for people who work in bow hunting. <laughs> Professional bow yeah. hunters yeah. who are out there. Or manufacturers of bows. They punch in every morning, and they hunt with a bow until it's time to clock out. Yeah, and this magazine is for them. Yeah. But trade and publishing does not mean that. Yeah. <laughs> it's for the general reader. And Which, so you hear people refer yeah. to that. They're they're distinguishing it from scholarly, usually from scholarly work or textbooks or something yeah. like that. Or something that's spe- for a specialized readership defined by profession or something else. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Not to, not to yuck anybody's yum or anything, but probably most 
of anything that you have electively read for enjoyment again i don't know was probably a trade yeah publication of some kind yeah not to say that i don't love a good instruction manual or inscrutable textbook yeah you guys can read whatever you want and i wish you would email us about it Let's. We should go talk to Jeremy help. and yeah, Samara. Let's go. <laughs> We're gonna do it. Um, stay with us. And like I said, this is a really good one. Yeah, agreed. Hi, this is Hillary. Welcome to Index for Continuance. I'm here with Zach Peckham. Hello. And with Jeremy Wang Iverson of Vesto PR. Hi there. And with Samara Rayfert of the Ohio State University Press. Hi. I'll give a little introduction for our guests. And we're here to talk about publicity and marketing uh, and all things related. Jeremy is the founder of Vesto PR and Books, a literary publicity and marketing agency. Uh, Vesto's clients include, I think, an incredible range of independent, small press, academic, and also big five writers and publishers, including books from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, University of California Press, West Virginia University Press, and more. I was just like looking over your list and seeing... (laughs) Of the, of the literary writers that listeners of the podcast may know well, recent books you've worked on include uh, work by Iman Marsal, Julie Carr, Stephen Graham Jones, Deisha Filia. We worked together on Andrea Lawler's book at Rescue Press. And also, for disclosure, um, Jeremy and I worked together on two of my books as an author. And Samara uh, is the pub- publicist and marketing manager at the Ohio State University Press, which publishes uh also a really wide range of academic series and is home to the literary imprint Mad Creek Books. And Mad Creek publishes, among other things, the series Machete, 21st Century Essays, and Latino Graphics. Um, So we're really excited to talk to you both. And feel free to augment (laughs) my introductions uh, or correct me. Um, I wanted to just start out, you know, on this podcast, one goal we have is to just kind of demystify how publishing works. And so I wanted to start with some really basic questions, which is like, in book publishing, what are we talking about when we talk about publicity? Like, what does a publicist do? What role does publicity play in the life of a book? And then maybe what's the, is there a working difference that you two use between sort of publicity and marketing? Um, You know, when I was putting those interests together, I noted that both your job titles include both those terms. And I've noticed in kind of more general discussions of publishing and media, sometimes those terms are used interchangeably, although I have thought they tend to describe different tasks. So I'm just curious about what is publicity um, and are there useful ways to differentiate like publicity and marketing? The way I've always seen it is the publicity is the last stage of the process uh, where the goal is to try to get the new books to their ideal readers. And there are a range of different strategies and techniques that the publicists, either in a freelance capacity like myself or the in-house publicists like Samara are able to employ to that end. The very quick way that I usually make the distinction between publicity and marketing is that publicity tends to be efforts to uh, pitch a book on its own merits, uh, where it's commonly referred to as the earned media. 
So a press release is sent to an editor or to a producer, and they decide to engage to read the book and write about it because they think it would be something that's useful to their audience. Uh, on the marketing side, on the other hand, uh, the, usually some form of payment could be involved. It could be, a, for, ex for example, an ad, uh, or it could be social media, something where an audience is being leveraged to bring the book forward. Yeah, I mean, at, at a lot of smaller presses, at least in the university press world, marketing is sort of the umbrella department that can include publicity, sales, uh, metadata. The sort of real basic distinction that I keep in mind is I think of publicity, like Jeremy said, is stuff you're going out and trying to get. And anything that's really um, public facing and not paid. So yeah, getting the authors interviewed, getting the books reviewed, uh, placing first person pieces by the authors. And I I don't know if this is technically correct, but I think of marketing as the sort of more behind the scenes stuff, the stuff you do to kind of build up the overall presence of the press and its list. And I mean, that can include things like placing ads. Um, but I also think of it as an umbrella that includes, you know, writing the copy in a specific way, thinking through the audience, the metadata, which... I'm not an expert in necessarily, but we could talk about a lot because it's a really important part of the discoverability of the book. And that can include, you know, keywords, SEO type things, but also just basically all the, all the information you're presenting about the book to the world that has a marketing effect because you're tailoring it to try to reach the widest and most appropriate audience possible for the book. I'm really curious about the way that um, you both talk about this idea of like metadata, right? And, you know, I, I, I think a lot about the value of things like the way that books are often, like a lot of things, you know, often shopped for in these uh, like e-commerce spaces are often relying on certain types of like tags, right? And like tagging and strategies that are like, they seem really innocuous, but are actually like extremely important, right? To try and just like help, you know, help, <laughs> help the search engine find the book that the person is looking for, you know, on that like deep level of like how we understand, um, you know, how, how books get categorized. I guess I, I wonder if there are certain, like if we could just hang out in the, the weeds of the swamp for one second. Is there like, like at what point does that become a step in the, the process, whether it's marketing or publicity, um, just like in your experience, I imagine there are different strategies around it. Like, do you begin with this sort of like tag cloud, you know, um, try to like build that sort of almost like archival function, like earlier or later, or do I, do either of you sort of think of it that way? Or is that something that kind of comes a little bit later when, it comes to like, okay, now, now we're actually trying to like, you know, place this title in, um, in, in shops and in dist with distributors. I mean, there are kind of different technical elements of, I like thinking of it as just a, an amorphous tag cloud that consists of different specific elements. Um, and I promise I won't, I'll let Jeremy talk, but 
at least as an in-house marketing person, for us on the marketing side, the process starts with um, at what at my old press we called the launch, what we call the transmittal meeting at OSU. And that's when the acquisitions editor has everything ready to transmit to production and editorial. And so we have a press meeting where the acquisitions editor presents the book as this is going to be on this season's list. And at that meeting, we go over the basics. The editor gives an overview of the book. They've already drafted some description of it to get a sense of, you know, its intervention, if it's a scholarly book. I guess trade books can have interventions too. And we that's where we kind of nail down, okay, what price can we afford to price this book at that will still keep it as accessible as possible to its intended audience? What is its intended audience? Is it a, is it a trade book or a scholarly book? And that's kind of the real major original distinction, I guess, when you think about marketing. If it's a trade book, we the editors will provide some preliminary keywords. The author usually at that point has filled out a marketing questionnaire that helps give us a sense of their take on the book. Um, so we kind of, that's where we sketch in the basics of the meta metadata, which includes everything from trim size, pricing, page light, you know, number of pages, uh, the full description of the book, which at this point is very preliminary, the concise or sales hook for the book. A really important element thinking about tag clouds is the BISAC codes and which is um, book in this, oh my god, I can't even remember what it stands for. Yeah, I can't remember. That's what it fine. Yeah. <laughs> totally so, book cool, industry yeah. study group comes up with them. So, you'll uh, see them on the copyright page of books. Yes, usually. it helps librarians yeah. and it puts it in the right subject. And actually, the if you look on an Amazon page and you look at the rankings, there's always the overall rankings, but then sometimes there are those very specific rankings you'll see underneath. Those are generally dictated by the BISEC codes that a publisher assigns. Well, and I actually have a funny story about that that I was going to bring up thinking about tag clouds. So and I, I, I hope I'm not incorrect about this, but what I have been told is that, um, yeah, so Amazon does not map directly to the BISACs, but they sort of roughly give Amazon a positioning idea, but Amazon also draws fairly heavily on keywords in terms of how it um, ranks and categorizes books. And so we have a really amazing book coming out uh, at the end of this month called The Hunger Book, a memoir from communist Poland. It won our Gournay Prize for a first collection of essays. And it is a memoir about growing up in communist Poland, but it also includes Polish recipes and food and deprivation and hunger and mushroom foraging are all like really important threads in the book. And so there is a BISAC code. I'd have to call up the exact ones I chose. You know, the ones we often will use for essay collections, there's there's one for literary collections slash, slash essays because most of our essay collections also have a memoir component. There's also um, a separate BISAC code for memoir. And then there was a code for food essays. So those are the BISAC codes I chose. 
And then in the keywords, I tried to include a lot of phrases that would, you know, Polish cooking, food memoirs, food writings, literary food writing, etc. And the author pointed out to me a couple weeks ago that her book was like number 121 on Amazon in potato cooking. (laughs) And, (laughs) And she was like, can you do anything about this? And I was like, well, you know, I checked that we had the correct bisects entered and that they felt appropriate to the book. They were. I went into the system we used to, you know, to release the metadata into the world. And I looked at the keywords. And the only thing I could think of was that one of the keywords, I don't even remember exactly what it was. It was something like Polish recipes, I think. And I was like, maybe recipes is doing it. And so I took out that one keyword and re-released the metadata. And when I checked it again, it was no longer ranked in potato cooking, but it was ranked in food writing or like literary food writing. So I think it was that one (laughs) keyword that took it out of potato cooking. I mean, the sad thing is there's much less competition for potato cooking books. So (laughs) um, I was going to say 121 is great. (laughs) How is this even a category potato cooking? And then another, so, so that was instructive to me because I had always thought those categories were primarily drawn from the bisects, but in this case, it seemed to be that one tiny little adjustment I made. So that was, I mean, it, okay, wait, I might be wrong. I, I did also report incorrect product information where I just said, this book is not about potato cooking. So <laughs> I don't know if that made a difference too, but it was, that's, it was weird. It's so fascinating how, like, how consequential those little you know, those little things are and, and how uh, somewhat at, at the mercy of these like incredibly powerful tools, right? Like I, I feel like this is maybe, you know, you, we, we, we're probably really familiar with the whole sort of like cottage industry of like SEO gobbledygook that like yeah. is totally getting replaced by ChatGPT at this point. But um, And it's so shady too. Yeah, right. Um, but, but it just, yeah, it is really, I don't know. I don't, I don't have like a great conclusion. I'm just like, I'm just like fascinated by that. And like, yeah, potato cooking is a, a beautiful anecdote that I think speaks to <laughs> the sort of like the funny state of, um, of book selling, but then like maybe this deeper, maybe deeper ideas, right? Especially when one is trying to market a book, trying to do publicity, trying to like reach the, the ideal reader, you know, one has to sometimes contend with established like genre conventions or, um, you know, sort of try to try to like thread this weird needle, right? Especially if a, if a book is doing something that is maybe like innovative, right? Like that is doing something on the level of craft that uh, isn't as character or as categorizable as, you know, just potato cooking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think you could overstate the importance of that initial description. Zach, you mentioned the idea of doing word clouds. I mean, if publishers did have Mm -hmm. time to really do that imaginative brainstorming, it could potentially lead in positive directions. But the fact is that language is usually based on something the authors draft, and then there's people in-house that are polishing it, getting it to a certain word count. But in terms of search engines finding it, the discoverability issue, which Mm -hmm. is very important, 
Uh, I mean, even what publicists base their press releases on to send out to editors, you really want it to be as accurate as possible. Uh, mm-hmm. It's sort of straightforward, but then also boost the book, you know, boost the book in, the, in, in all the ways that uh, you think could be useful, whether that means comparing to other authors, using certain types of adjectives, like not to be shy in that way, uh, just because it's the sort of moments, moment to shine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I try to front load the copy. I mean, I and I don't always have a huge authorship role in the copy. Sometimes the author and or the editor just nail it. But one thing I noticed not too long ago is that if you Google one of our book titles, it used to be I think it used to be that, you know, there was a search snippet we released that we called the concise description. And that is what will show if we, the way we structure our web pages, that'll, that's what will show if you like tweet the book link. But I noticed that if you Google our book title, the first line or two of the full descriptive copy is what shows up as the description. And so once I noticed that, I've really been focusing on making that first sentence be as not just like intriguing in terms of marketing terms, but directly communicating what the book is to the people we want to read it. And that can be really tricky when you only have a sentence and you don't want it to be like clunky and sort of expository dialogue-ish, you know, but yeah. (laughs) It's so fascinating. And I was thinking about how, you know, for some of my books that are listed on Amazon as like women's fiction or women's Mm -hmm. poetry in a way that you're sometimes like, what's men's poetry? (laughs) Which I, you know, I don't like have a, it doesn't raise an issue for me along the lines of like potato cooking, but you know, it is sort of (laughs) reminds you that those um, categories like all of our digital life, you know, reflects these kind of cultural conceptions um, that we can't control in the same way. Um, and I was thinking, you know, too, of, of this question of uh, like comps of what, you know, when the publicity and marketing material, like um, how to compare a book precisely so that you can grab audience, but you don't lead into that space where people are like disappointed. You know, like I, I was thinking of yeah. a novel I read recently and I checked out the Goodreads reviews like I like to do. And, you know, at some point someone in the press release or marketing material had compared it to Gone Girl. And so a ton of the reviews were just like, this book really is not like Gone Girl. <laughs> you know, like it was just, and you're like, oh no. So you can see this sort of space of, of people, you know, calibrating and figuring out how to hit those, hit those marks. That's really interesting. And comps, I would I would love to hear what Jeremy has to say about comps. Because um, in there was actually a recent discussion. We're, we're distributed by the Chicago Distribution Center, which is part of the University of Chicago Press. Mm-hmm. And they had their publisher summit in May. And there was a panel with the sales reps. And they were talking about comps. And it became clear that what makes a good comp also really depends on the context and who you're telling the comp to. So like in the metadata, the, the comps that can go out publicly with our metadata, I believe have to be our own books. And so in that case, we'll usually use, you know, just recent books from the same series or, you know, the same genre or whatever, but on Edelweiss, which is the catalog platform that most publishers use to reach booksellers and librarians, um, when we fill in the comps, you know, that is where we can kind of use other 
books from other publishers to kind of position the book for the marketplace. But you have to be careful with that because, you know, if we expect our book to sell X number of copies, we don't want to compare it to a blockbuster, no matter how similar it is, because to a certain extent, booksellers are using that to get a sense of sales potential too. But I, the, I guess with my marketing brain on, the number one thing I, thing I think about in terms of comps is, yeah, similar, recent, they say they're not supposed to be more than um, two or three years old, titles by other authors or presses that give sort of a clear category by association, I guess, to position it for readers. But yeah, you have to be careful. You don't want to oversell or choose the wrong one. I would agree with that. And I, I do think it is important and useful as much as it's possible to, to keep the comps within equivalent presses. So if you're publishing with University Press, find other University Press, Indie Press books. Occasionally, I, I have seen authors who are who put book up from big five publishers and you know certainly you can see how the books sort of talk to each other uh but just as far as you know what we're trying to do on the marketing and publicity side to position it properly and you know try to not keep that not make the expectations too high uh to think about it in that way there are some presses uh for instance west virginia will occasionally put comp authors in descriptive copy. And this is something that we, some, uh, I'm not usually involved in this part of it. Uh, West Virginia, I, I sort of work in many different ways with them. So occasionally I talk to the authors about it. And one had the interesting feedback where they said, well, maybe if the blurber says something like that, it would be better and a little bit more uh, modest than <laughs> just putting it right in the description. So you have to think about uh, the work that endorsements might be able to do to get that message across as well. Yeah. Yeah. I We had a great blurb one time. My brain is Swiss cheese, but it was something like, it's as if Mary Gateskill and somebody had a baby and <laughs> like, that's awesome. Um, I mean, back to comps, I, it is tricky. Like, I I think there is probably a value to including books that are not necessarily from a comp publisher if you're directing them at potential readers. Like, if you know a book is really similar in style or subject or accessibility to a book that will be much better known, I feel like as a reader, I find that useful. But when you're thinking in terms of sales comps or publicity comps, that's where you have to be a little more scaled back. That's cool. I have a, can, can I ask just a tiny follow-up and then I, I, <laughs> I'm sorry for going straight to straight to the swamp with this stuff. I, I'm having <laughs> such a great time though. Um, when uh, you mentioned this idea of, um, I mean, blurbs, right? And, and I imagine in the production process of the book, it might vary for the press exactly when and who uh, is reaching out for blurbs or sourcing those. Um, and you don't, you don't have to tell me in your case personally, but I'm curious. And like, the, also, like, I, we, we also solicit bur uh, blurbs for the Poetry Center, right? So like, we're all in some way, we've like touched, touched this part of this process um, in different ways. Are you aware of 
like it seems like there's such there's such a sort of like art to like sourcing the right blurb um but i'm curious whether any of us are aware of like when those are being sourced are they ever a little like um what am i trying to say like are they ever like sort of like pre-directed in any kind of way like are they ever sort of like a little like a little a little juiced a little bit like when you ask for one is anyone like like whether you're working in marketing or publicity or whatever like is, is there ever like you know it'd be great if you could say how this like this kind of thing like do you know what i mean or is that um i don't i don't think so i don't yeah i think authors know what they're expected and what's hoped for from them <laughs> like when they, when they get when they're solicited for a blurb and it's usually a yes or no depending on their time and ability and also connection to the press and author yeah i definitely don't when i'm making the ask i try to keep that as simple and direct as possible and just say you know, depending if it's someone the author doesn't know directly, but they suggested, I might say, you know, here's, I just send the manuscript and say, you know, if you have time, please consider doing this, blah, blah, blah. I, I don't know if a lot of times our authors are the ones soliciting blurbs as well, and they may do some of that. But where I do take a hand in the content of the blurb is on the editorial end when I'm pulling together the copy depending on how many blurbs we get, you know, I try to strike a balance and so that the blurbs aren't repeating each other and that the copy isn't repeating the blurbs, um, just to try to hit as many distinct marketing points as we can. I will sometimes, if a blurb is just kind of lackluster, I might tweak the wording. I always run any changes, any, you know, content changes by the writer and you, or the, you know, the blurbist. And usually they're totally fine with it. Most often it has to do with length. People will turn in like a paragraph and I have to extract like one or two sentences from that. If I see blurb cliche words, I will usually try to change those. Um, I recently noticed that unflinchable is like the new unput downable or un, not un, unflinching is the new unput downable, um, the new luminous. Not that people don't use luminous and unput downable. It's like shocking when you see how repetitive the blurb language gets. <laughs> so I try to like mitigate that as much as I can. There's a big piece that was just published this morning in Esquire about blurbs. And, oh. Uh, the fraught nature of them somewhat. Wait, and... did you see the Atlantic piece from like two weeks ago? Uh, the Atlantic also had a big piece of a blurb. Yeah, it's, it seems like a, a reoccurring uh, point of contention, uh, sort of among agents and publishers, and just to understand sort of what they mean, how they should be interpreted. I mean, at the end of the day, the sort of bookseller and editorial community say, hey, we're overwhelmed. We're getting sent so many things. So we sort of need something to get a handle on it. And that would blurb before, but there are some agents and people who like to imagine a, blur a blurbless world where it doesn't it doesn't exist anymore. And I would love that. I hate <laughs> dealing with blurbs. It just becomes such a fraught process, you know, where we can only fit two on the cover. But if they have five blurbs, then where in the pecking order do certain blurbs fall? And you know, 
there has to be, if we want to do an interior praise page, it doesn't make sense unless you have a certain critical mass. And so it becomes more complicated for editorial and production. And depending on how much, you know, the blurbs need to be cut, cut down or whatever, it's just, it just turns into a lot of back and forth and it can be a real source of insecurity for authors if they feel like they're not getting enough. And I, I really want to know what Jeremy thinks as an independent publicist, because my perspective as someone who works, who kind of sees the sales and the, the copy process as well, is that, you know, I've had books do really, really well with just one blurb. I've had books that had a million blurbs that, you know, did great, but not unusually, not, not necessarily better than they would have if they'd only had two blurbs, you know. And like the the gist of the Atlantic piece that I read was that it's become this sort of blurbs arm race in a way that is symptomatic of the overall publicity landscape and just how much more competitive for eyeballs publicity has become and just how much more atomized and scattered it's become. You know, authors feel like blurbs are kind of the sure thing now that there aren't as many opportunities necessarily for big advanced reviews. But I feel like we should just take a stand. Like, we don't need 5,000. I, but I will say at the same time, I one time had a producer at Morning Edition contact me because she saw a book in a display, or she saw a description of a book event and saw some of the high-profile blurbs. And, like, I don't think the blurbs are what made her reach out. I think it was the book description, but she did comment, like, oh, great blurbs, too. So... You know, depending on who the blurb is from, you know, it can. We had Hanif Abdurraki blurbed one of our books, and that definitely, like, I think got some people to take a second look. I love the phrase blurbs arm race. And I also really appreciate <laughs> your use of the term blurbist over blurber. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds better. <laughs> I've always said blurber, but at OSU, in our little context database, the role you assign is blurbist. So, yeah, it's yeah it, and it's easier to say than blurber. <laughs> I think a lot of writers would love to get rid of them, you know, because it's such a difficult favor to ask and to be in the economy of arms race-wise. And also, as, you're, as you noted, the fact that you have to ask for something called a blurb just adds an extra like humiliation <laughs> to it. Um, at some point, <laughs> um, maybe I'll blur out the details of this particular project, but I was with a friend, we were gonna create a website where you could upload as a writer, any blurb that you were willing to have appear on any book. And any writer <laughs> would be free to download any blurb from that site. <laughs> And we were like, this will solve it. Um, (laughs) That will just be like, you know, this book was unflinchingly unput downable, Hillary (laughs) Clough, and anyone could use it, you know, so it's just, it's a, it's a difficult question. You know, maybe I kind of wanted to ask, and you just refer to a little bit of, of the changing landscape of review venues, or maybe we could just say the shrinking landscape of review venues, and, and that there are fewer places to get advanced reviews and the kind of you know, trade publications that used to drive a lot of things, you know, things aren't working in the same way anymore. Um, and I'm curious just to hear both of your thoughts about that. I mean, on this podcast, maybe because I've been in publishing about 20 years and also a lot of the, you know, dynamics that shape the landscape now, that's roughly, you know, that's a, a spread in which they have taken place, consolidation into the big five, 
the rise of Amazon, social media, you know, the existence of digital technology that let small presses and self-publishers kind of get in the mix and produce books affordably. And then is the collapse of newspapers <laughs> and, and the shrinking of so many places that um, book reviews and cultural criticism um, and all of these things, you, you know, where they used to happen and, and where discussion of um, books and cultural work used to take place and, and the places that, you know, publicists would, would naturally be working with. So I'm just curious to kind of hear from you both of, of sort of in the time that you've been in publishing and in publicity, sort of what changes you've witnessed, like that have affected kind of your work and the reception of books, you know, like new challenges in there. Some of it might be new possibilities. I don't know. I'm Yeah. What has kind of happened in, in the time span of your work? I would definitely say the decline of the book reviews in quantity has been something I've observed over the past 15 years or so and something that's talked about quite a bit, but also the influence of those outlets too, as far as triggering sales. I think at at one point, the publicity process meant sending out review copies to book review editors, and you could be encouraged that books, a a good portion of them would get picked up and assigned. And the landscape has entirely changed now. Uh, I mean, there still are some select venues that it's always a priority of any publicity campaign uh, to try to crack into. Uh, But on the other hand, there needs to be an effort to approach freelancers, approach people who might be able to pick up the baton and sort of pitch reviews on their own. Just because the fact is the review editors are overworked, they are getting deluged. If they hear from someone who says, hey, I will write about this book, (laughs) rather than the publicist or the publisher, then giving responsibility to the editor to find somebody, uh, I think it creates a little bit of an extra possibility there. The one thing that has been nice is the various online possibilities, uh, such as podcasts, such as things that could be done in the social media space to spread the word. I mean, of course, these tools just didn't exist at all not so long ago. So figuring out the best way to leverage them has been a good challenge. Yeah, I mean, the thing about freelancers um, is so, it's like, I think there's so many people who are writing intelligently about books for venues that are really doing the good work of trying to create a place where writing about books can live. But when you're talking about, uh, at least me as a staff publicist, when I'm talking about trying to find ways to get an individual book out there, it's, it's really challenging because you don't want to pitch someone if you don't have some way to indicate that you're familiar with their writing or that, you know, specifically why you think a book might be appropriate to them. Um, But that takes a lot of time to, build those connections. And that's why like, yes, I I try to build those connections over time so that I can get a sense. I know who's responded positively to pitches for a certain book in the past. So therefore they might respond positively to a pitch for this book. But we also rely really heavily on the authors and their networks. And um, for example, like I have not had a lot of success getting responses from a certain book venue when I email them at their editorial address or send ARCs. But 
I've had them run several interviews or reviews of books that were pitched by someone the author knew who just said, this person has a book coming out. It's interesting. I want to interview them or write about the book. Um, so I think like what Jeremy said is absolutely true. And like, it, it can be tricky because when you're dealing, especially with legacy media, you know, there's, there's rules about conflicts of interest and some, some places have rules about, you know, we don't want publicists to suggest specific writers, but I think more and more, my sense is that especially, you know, a lot of the newer online venues, they just need content. And so if someone can come to them with that content ready, it's a much, it's much easier sell um, because they are overworked, I'm sure. I mean, one, you know, facet of it that we think about, like, or I think about both as a writer and as a um, editor and publisher, and maybe like, uh, <laughs> disagreeing with myself from between those two positions, <laughs> is like, what should, like, what should authors do to help publicize their books, you know, maybe particularly in a social media era where authors are individual, you know, they're, they become a public person, right, um, in a different way than they would have prior to social media, um, right? Like if, you know, your posts about your book might be interspersed with, you know, content about your family or your weekend or your social life or your existence in X or Y, like city, et cetera. And, and that is a, that's a difficult, difficult ask. Um, and in, in the small press world that, you know, we mostly work in, I, I totally respect when people, which have included me in the past when my 2018 book came out, and I'm sorry about this also, Jeremy, but yeah. I, I quit Twitter right as it came out. I was like, I I'm remember, out. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> I can't be in here anymore. Um, and I shouldn't have done that, but I did. And, you know, I understand why people don't want to be in that space for mental health reasons, for all sorts of reasons. And also, I don't think in a practical sense, you know, when, um, you know, people with their first or second book come and they're like, should I join social media? Like, what should I do? And you're like, well, I don't think it really works to join social media right as your book comes out just to promote your book. Like, like that doesn't, it doesn't actually work. You have to kind of be willing to have a more substantive relationship with the whole media and community and build it and do all that stuff. And that's you know, that takes time and effort and engagement. And so it's like when we, you know, Zach and I, and I'm, I'm sure you guys as well, and in, in our various different roles, are talking to people of like what they could do, okay, you like you could be on social media, you could, you know, organize a reading tour, really get out there, like, which also costs time and money, you know, you can try to place essays or interviews around the book, or, in, you know, interview other authors to kind of be out there and in the mix, reach out to your professional contacts, your family and friends, you know, connect with organizations, all that stuff. You know, I sort of like, we want to give people a list of a bunch of things they could do, but also be like, you don't have to do all of these things, but you should pick a few that you can do and that you will do. And like, you know, we're not going to require you to become a brand, et cetera, but you know, we, you should find some authentic or maybe pretty authentic ways that you could kind of represent and talk about your book and the world and, have conversations about it and let like interested humans know that it exists. <laughs> and for us, it's like, I feel like we've ended up with this kind of like joke of like, okay, you don't have to do everything. You don't have to like join Twitter, but you do have to like tell your mom that your book came out. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like your mom can stand in for like anything, you know, just like you have to do one thing. I don't know. I'm curious, like how you guys kind of navigate that gap between writers doing their work of like, creating literature, creating cultural and intellectual work, creating scholarship, and then writers being people who are, you know, in your work, you'd like them to be out there representing their book, you'd like them to be helping publicize it. And also, there's definitely a 
good to that that's related to the work of the book, right? They're having conversations about it. They're connecting it with readers. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm just curious how you kind of na- navigate that gap, help your, help writers <laughs> navigate that gap and, and any like advice you might have for writers who are kind of stuck in those questions or not sure how to like cultivate their public self exactly. <laughs> I never want authors to feel like they should be promoting their book in a way that doesn't feel natural to them. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like it's best to kind of let fit, like help them figure out the mode that feels appropriate to them, whether that's emailing a few people or posting on social media or uh, whatever. But like, I do get authors sometimes who ask like, do I, I don't, I'm not really active on social media. Does that mean my book is going to tank or should I join social media just for that reason? And my answer is a resounding no, like there's nothing worse than a forced social media account. But yeah, I mean, it can be tricky because we do need the authors to do something. And I've seen a lot of author, it's almost become like a I've seen a lot of these emails, but sometimes they're really effective. Like the authors who send up like friendly email to their family and friends, encouraging them to pre-order and just announcing that the book is coming out. I think like that, that can be really great. And like, no one's asking you to email people you don't know well, but if it's people who love you, you know, they're going to be receptive to something like that. And they're going to be excited about it. And, you know, just also can be generational, just how comfortable some people are in certain modes. But I mean, I've seen a lot of younger authors who are just you know, they have no problem just putting it out there on social media. And that has really resulted in, I, it's hard to say whether that's resulted directly in sales, but at least we see the posts getting a lot of engagement, which is something. And I think when that stuff comes from the author rather than the press, it's always going to be more effective if the author has that audience, because as a press, we publish such a wide variety of topics and types of books, you know, we're not going to reach the same kind of targeted, motivated audience about an individual book as the author will. But I don't know if that really answered anything, but I, f- I feel like Jeremy might might have some other ideas. No, I definitely agree. Uh, I mean, that's it's something I, I, I never lose sight of the sort of difficulty and the work that the author put in to get the book written, to get it to the point of publication. And at that point, it could and should be the responsibility of the publisher and the marketing team to do everything they can to bring work and energy to, to get it out there. Uh, I've certainly heard very funny responses to the author questionnaires from authors where it says, tell us everybody you know. <laughs> and many authors say, well, I don't really know anybody. That's why I'm, you know, that's why I want to work with the publisher to try to sort of broaden the network, sort of expand the circle. And it certainly, there needs to be a, a push and a pull, a good collaboration there. Uh, I mean, one of, the, and it's something that always has to be calibrated at the beginning of every campaign. Uh, I mean, one of the interesting dynamics that I have to contend with is that the publishers or authors I'm working for, they're paying on the project basis. And you know, even if I am getting, you know, sort of working directly for the author, it doesn't necessarily absolve them of responsibility to help get to the desired results. But at the same time, 
certainly we have more experience. We've seen a, a sort of a wide range of how things that play out and we would never take on anything, nor should any freelance publicist uh, for that matter, where they don't think they could sort of make some useful connections and help make things happen. I definitely agree with both of your approaches as far as try, as far as what authors can do. It's what, you know, what they feel equipped to do, what they're comfortable to do. And I don't think social media has to be an obligation if they're not, if they don't, if they're not conducive to it. That makes me wonder. Um, I think, <laughs> I, th- I mean, it's our experience too that, uh, I mean, at least with like poetry center books, right. Which are the audience that we can expect for that, right? Like the, the sales figures, the size of the audience is like realistically quite small. And those kinds of like, we're, we're kind of in like the, the pre-order phase of our 2023 books right now. And one of the things that we encourage that we always encourage is like, that like we said, you know, we do some sort of more personal outreach to just like friends of the press, people we know are like the good readers of, of those books. Um, and we encourage the authors to do the same. And I, and it is, uh, it is wild, like the, the impact that it has. Right. Um, and it, it, it makes sense. And it feels like, I don't know, just like such a like direct result right away. Um, I'm curious that like within, in both of your work, like what are, what are the things that help a book break sort of beyond that sphere, right. Of like, just the sort of the personal or, um, you know, the things that there's a, there's an element, right. And it, it certainly depends on the type of book and, you know, the intended audience, but I feel like for a lot of what we might think of as more like literary titles, right. Like poetry collections, uh, essays, memoir, um, sort of like small press fiction, uh, there is such a sort of like role of, of personality involved in it, right? In, in sort of put the, the sale of the book and what one as a reader interacts with when they pick it up and they're, they're looking to have an experience, maybe not just of the book, but also of the, the author themselves, right? There's an element of that. Um, so I'm curious that like when it comes to marketing and publicity, like what are, what do you find like sort of in the, in the present moment, given the sort of like all the flux that, you know, we've just described with like how reviews have changed, um, how that, you know, especially like legacy media, things have shifted there. What are the tactics um, that you find are, are the most effective generally? And maybe it's impossible to say, but I'm just curious that um, maybe for more literary titles, like what, what helps the book sort of break beyond that? Just, you know, like the, the friends, the friends and, and your mom circle, you know? I Actually, I guess we could talk about awards a little bit here. Uh, I mean, cool. awards can give a major boost. And <laughs> it's how Samara and I first were in touch mm-hmm. in 2020 when Disha Filia's uh, Secret Lives of Church Ladies was published and was long-listed and then shortlisted for a National Book Award in Fiction. And then on the nonfiction side... Uh, Gerald Walker's collection of essays. And that was a Mad Creek book. Is that right? Mm-hmm. How to Make a Slave. Yeah. Yeah. That was a sort of an interesting confluence of small press books. Uh, yeah. There were three small, three university presses that year that had long lists. And then I think West Virginia and Ohio State were the two that had um, finalists in different genres. Yeah. Fiction and nonfiction. 
And Tamara, I don't know what the publicity for Walker's book was prior to that, but in Disha's case, it was you know, it was very modest. You know, there was a review in Minneapolis Star Tribune, there was a review in Kirkus, maybe. Like we had mm-hmm. had a couple uh, a couple events lined up. Uh, yep. And when that long list announcement came, it was actually exactly this time, uh, three years ago, mid- middle of September. Yeah. Uh, it, it, from there, it, it just suddenly seemed that it was uh, off to the races uh, for a, a several month period. Yeah, it was really funny timing. Um, it was similar for Gerald's book, where I think he got Kirkus and Publishers Weekly, maybe. Um, and, you know, he was an established essayist at that point, but that can be a somewhat narrow <laughs> uh, audience. And so, you know, he's a, he's an amazing writer, and we've gotten some interest there. And I think I, I was already at that point in touch with, you know, some of the the Boston media, but I remember like I had just pitched his book came out actually after the national book, after the long list status was announced, it was a November book. And so like the week or two before I had followed up, you know, we always send an arc or a PDF to the New York times general book desk, but I was following up with an individual editor there and, um, I was like, you know, this book's coming out. He's reviewed for you before. Just want to make sure you knew about it. And and then like two days later, we found out he was long listed. And so I emailed back and then like, and she was like, oh, thanks. And then a week after that, we learned they were, um, they requested the print copy for a full review. And so. That was Jen's lie. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And he had written, he had reviewed for her before. So I, I don't know if it was the long list status or just the follow-up that got them, got her interested, but that happened. And um, Fresh Air was the other big one, the other big request that came out of that, which, yeah, I hope that's not the only time I have an author on Fresh Air. <laughs> that was pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't necessarily a immediate deluge, but it definitely bumped the sales and got like sort of dream media hits coming my way that I don't think ever, you know, people I pitch routinely, but never respond. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, I think the important thing to keep sight of is the Indian university press world are putting out books that are routinely overlooked by big five presses. Yes. And every now and then there is the opportunity for those presses and books to connect uh, with major discourse, major discussions. Of course, 2020 was the summer of the George Floyd protests and uh, both uh, Disha and Gerald Walker were speaking to that in a way, even though these books have been scheduled years sort of in advance Mm. and uh, sort of giving voice to something that wasn't there otherwise. And that was certainly, I think, a contributing factor and that was, I think that's the thing to always be sort of hopeful and optimistic about. Uh, I mean, the big press, I mean, the mainstream media, 
of course, it's a very small percentage of the the books that are are able to break through, but it's a matter of sort of being consistent and sort of continuing to remind them <laughs> that we're here, that we're doing this work. And when the right opportunity is there, like it was for how to make a slave, I think that's great to see. I had forgotten about fresh air. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> it is really interesting to see too, how the, um, like hearing you talk about that specific situation and then like the role, the role of awards too. I mean, you know, the book kind of has to be out for a little bit before it starts getting like, listed right for whatever it might be uh and it you know i think we often think of or at least i often think of something like like marketing in general and then book marketing and publicity in specific right as this sort of this sort of like immediate immediate pursuit right or like it's like let's let's hurry right we have to like hurry and um there are like timelines are important and things need to happen in a coordinated fashion but it's like there is that initial push that initial bump things you know certainly like like we experience certainly with poetry center books there's this like post-publication lull right after all the fanfare it's kind of like okay what's going to happen it feels a little bit like maybe a little scary um but then it's off i mean i i always feel so like sort of heartened by the things that that kind of take a year to come together but then are are so good and like so worth the wait too like most of the best I feel like most of the best reviews, um, at least in like the case of like Poetry Center books that we've seen, like th they don't come out. Not that we don't get good reviews right away sometimes, but like I feel like the ones that are like you really tell like this is this is a review that like gets it and like I think frames the book in a really, if I'm thinking about it in like a sales way, like in such a unique and valuable way, like that that does sometimes take like a year or 18 months or even like two years after the book was out, which makes me then wonder like when you are like when, whether you're working on a, a, a publicity project on a freelance basis or putting together a campaign in house for a new book, to what extent do you try to establish specific like benchmarks or like goals versus trying to sort of keep things sort of open-ended because I, I, I imagine there's like, there's a balance there, right? Because one, one has to try to, I guess, right. Uh, if you're going to like go through all the trouble, set something up, especially like sort of sell a service, you know, to an author, um, there has to be a sense of like, what are we actually doing here? But there are these like sort of unquantifiable things. So I'd be curious to hear how you, you both sort of think about the idea of like, you know, benchmarks or, or, or KPIs when it comes to, you know, the, the, the strange game of, of book marketing and publicity? That's a really good question. And it, as, as you say, it is difficult to sort of pinpoint. I do think there is extraordinary value either in-house or in the freelance capacity to try to articulate the goals as best as possible. Right. So in the different categories of book publicity that there are, whether reviews, features, making lists, doing interviews, doing events, doing social media, like figure out which one of these that we want to pinpoint and how we're going to get them and who we think are going to be receptive to it. Uh, certainly there is no publicist that can promise anything you know there's no there's no guarantees and that could be the one part that can 
you know, for good reason, give any publisher or author pause, you know, what, <laughs> what am I going to get out of this? You know, it's nice to hear that a publicist is going to make a great effort and they will very well do. But if you end up at the end of the day uh, with, you know, nothing with no results, it's sort of an unfulfilling partnership. Uh, I mean, one of the adjustments that we made uh, on our end a few years back, it was actually during the pandemic as well, was we did start getting more actively involved in advertising, uh, sort of paid media, where we then had the opportunity to build in uh, deliverables into sort of our contract. So we would be able to say, hey, we'll do this, we'll do this outreach to these editors, we'll try to set up these interviews, and we'll hope for the best, but if nothing else, we have ads in X, Y, and Z as well. So, you know, we know that there's some awareness for the book that wasn't there previously. Yeah. I mean, I think Jeremy and I talked a little bit about the differences between being in-house and independent uh, when it comes to this. And for me, because I have a number of books that I need to be thinking about um, at any given time, in addition to all the non-publicity aspects of my job, there kind of is only so much I can do. So at the, I kind of think of it in terms of like, at the very least, this is what I need to do for this book. I need to get the galleys out far enough ahead of publication date that it has a shot at being reviewed in, you know, the pre-pub places. I need to contact members of the author's hometown media, you know, what's the local NPR talk show? What's the, does the newspaper have a book review section, et cetera. And if I, and, and then beyond that, it's like really working with the author to try to brainstorm what are the things we can do that will have the biggest return on our time investment. I mean, for me, and as sales reps is the other thing I have to send, you know, I make sure I send stuff to the sales reps so that they can cover that aspect of getting the book out there. Um, so I don't know, like I, I wish I had more time to do a, a really expansive targeted campaign for every book, but I don't. And I, and that is where independent publicists come in and it's been really nice that authors, I used to like, like oh no do they think I'm not doing good enough job if they brought in an independent publicist but um it's really helpful when authors do have the resources to do that because then an independent publicist can give a more targeted campaign than I can necessarily given my time constraints that's great that makes total sense yeah I, it's it's great to hear you talk about it it's something I always wonder about <laughs> you know um, yeah it is such a different or I don't know. I mean, like before, before I, before I knew what editing was, like I worked at like ad agencies, you know, and it's, it's, there are certain concepts or certain like language or certain like ways of thinking that I think like do apply, you know, from, I mean, I, I don't want to compare it to just like selling fire alarm systems, but like, you know, there are certain things, right. When it comes to, you know, trying to reach a market, right, that these are helpful ways of thinking and helpful concepts, but also, you know, publishing is so interesting because it's, it's also just like, it's like this slightly more involved or like different process of not just reaching the market, but maybe in publication, right, trying to like, reach or create, like the reading public. And this is, this is a different 
this is like kind of a, it, it relies on some of the same strategies, but it's like, it's slightly different. And it's such a different type of like, just a different industry, right? And a, a very different product from a uh, fire alarm system. <laughs> well, and I, I mean, I don't want to undersell what I can do for a book, but I yeah. think yeah, yeah, that's yeah. where it's really important to talk to the author early to kind of get a sense of expectations and be realistic about not only what can I do on the publicity side, but also I think a lot of times authors aren't so aware of all that goes into the behind the scenes stuff, like tailoring that metadata. The fact that we do have sales reps who do outreach to independent bookstores, the fact that we pay thousands of dollars a year for an Edelweiss subscription so that we can get the information about the book in front of readers and buyers that way. So I, I try to like make sure authors understand the behind the scenes stuff I'm doing and also just, yeah, be, you know, and some authors are, are like, I, I've gotten great publicity for books that didn't have an independent publicist for sure. But, you know, I want to make sure the authors understand that, you know, yes, I think it's very likely that your book will be reviewed in Kirkus or Publishers Weekly or Booklist. And yes, I I think it's highly likely that we'll be able to get you an interview on X or place an excerpt with Lit Hub or whatever. But yeah, I just want to be clear up front. And then that sets the stage for the author and I to really figure out how we can best work together to maximize the results. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think the partnership between the freelance publicist and the in-house is really important. I mean, even when we are doing the more granular work that Samara refers to, we're trying to do a little bit more research to find uh, possible editors to pitch. Uh, sometimes a pitch from the in-house publicist is is more impactful uh, in, in a way. Uh I mean, Zach, you're, you're, you, I imagine you get a lot of pitches in your role at Cleveland Review Books, and you might see something differently if it comes from the in-house team rather than a freelancer. And, you know, sometimes I think that sort of strategizing uh, is, is good to think about, like when and sometimes there's work the freelancer can do to prep something for the in-house person uh, to sort of streamline in that way. Well, and I love working with outside publicists because no matter how experienced they are, or how experienced I am, there's always something we can learn from one another. Um, you know, like they might have a great relationship with a, one contact at an outlet and I might have a great relationship with the other. So if we can each um, reach out to our person, then that just increases the likelihood that something might happen at that publication. Um, and, you know, I've, I feel like I've learned a lot from the independent publicists I've worked with. And, you know, I think it, it, it can be a really fun collaboration that way, especially when the author is also really, you know, willing to put themselves out there. Thank you. I was just thinking of like, I mean, there's so many directions to think about, but things we've witnessed in, in publishing in terms of like, okay, like, what is the relationship between sales and publicity or these kinds of like hitting benchmarks and publicity and how they translate to sales or how they translate to like quality of life or something where you're like, like a book getting a reception that is really meaningful to the author or to the press or something like that. You know, I was thinking of, you know, like some quick examples might be like when we've had books that were named, you know, best book of the year, uh, poetry book of the year in the New York times, like there's definitely a sales bump that happens right away from that 
I wish it, I always wish it lasts a little longer than it does, but it's real, right? It does happen. Like, but you know, winning a CLMP award, which specifically is for small presses and is a really important site of small press culture. I don't think there's really a sales bump from that, you know, like, um, it can be so hit or miss with awards. It's hard. It's like, or I think like the book of my own, you know, all my books are small press books that has sold the most, probably got the least reviews, but was really maybe read the most. I don't know. Like, it's like just thinking about these questions of like magic and, um, and like challenging this and like how unpredictable it all is, which you two both like not have to navigate all the time of like that. It can't, you know, you, you can't control the one thing that's the that's the outcome. Of course, we're in that too as writers and editors because we're always trying to figure out how to get a book to experience all its magic and reach the people that it wants to reach and it's meant to reach. And, and I guess the the thing I was hoping to ask you guys about is that in relation to sort of small press and indie work and doing all the work that you do outside the big, you know, like outside where the big center of, you know, money resources where mainstream media focus you know like most of the books that get the big awards the big attention all of that stuff that are on fresh air right that are getting the you know netflix adaptations those are big five books so you know a lot of the work that you're doing and we're doing is it's outside that space sometimes it like pops into that space it like breaks through it's also trying to cultivate like a community and like more culture around that space but it also means like you and we were working on books that are maybe less accessible. Like they are more challenging. They're meant to be challenging. They're, they're aesthetically and politically formally, like intellectually meant to not necessarily be easily assimilable or you can't necessarily just talk about them. And, and also like, Jeremy, I want to like, thank you in relation to that. I just remember with my novel, Strawberry Fields, which I, I think of it as a very difficult book, (laughs) like really, um, like when, you know, you did an interview with me about it and I just felt so like, I was like, Oh, thank you. You know, like it was like, you really read it so well. And I just was such a sense of like relief and like having the work be received and having a sense that like, Oh, I wasn't crazy (laughs) or something, you know? So I just was curious to like, like talk about how you navigate those power dynamics in publishing of like representing work that is deliberately outside the mainstream or might be in contravention to mainstream expectations or forms or, or discourses and, and kind of like your strategies for doing that, um, which obviously we also find to be like really important work. I think that was a really great way to sort of frame it and set up this question uh, as far as what you hope from on the other side uh, from the publicity. I guess the, my first response is in the small press world, my ethos, my idea has always been to think of it as cumulatively, uh, to think of in terms of building a career that you know, you're not necessarily hoping to sort of hit it out of the park right away. It would be nice if you did, of course, <laughs> like for some of these things. Uh, pieces that we've discussed, but sometimes the path can be very circuitous and unexpected. And I mean, one very specific example, Hillary, I could think of in your case was uh, the piece that you wrote about Elizabeth Koch uh, in the Fence blog. I mean, how many years ago was that? I mean, maybe two, was it, it was during the pandemic, I guess. I think there were two of them because I co-wrote one with Lucy Biederman and then I did a follow-up that was like 
maybe more targeted toward Elizabeth particularly. <laughs> yeah. And that would have been in like spring 2021, maybe I should know, but yeah. 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 I mean, it was a very forceful, important piece, had very strong opinion. And I would have thought maybe it would have gotten around a little bit more initially, but then just a couple months ago it was linked to in the times, I think, right. in, in a story. Uh, so, you know, putting the work out there, even at a small venue, uh, it, sort of has the ability sort of to be found and uh, to, to get to get covered. Uh, I mean, in, in, in terms of books, it does require extraordinary patience. I mean, just as what Zach was saying, that sometimes the best reviews come 18 months later, 24 months later. I was actually just listening to uh, David Naiman's podcast uh, just before this. Uh, we worked with Major Jackson last year on his selected prose that University of Michigan Press published. And, you know, we had a nice publicity campaign working working closely with Michigan. There was a few nice notices, but not until his new and selected that Norton is putting out this year did David say, okay, we can do the interview now. But it's it's really nice to hear how both those books are being discussed together. So, yeah, I mean, I, w- I would say... You know, just know nothing something happens right away, but to know that it's out there is is the most important piece of it. Well, and the story about the blog post kind of finding a second life when it's linked to in a large venue after the fact, I mean, to me, that's so indicative of how the publicity landscape has changed from sort of the the classic idea that, you know, you get reviews in big legacy print media that come out at the time of publication, and that's what makes a book. But um, there's a there's a newsletter I get about book selling, and there is an interesting piece a few months ago about that same dynamic. What the internet and what discoverability and what all these venues do now is they they can keep a backlist alive in ways because it's so much more likely that something, you know, there's so many more tools to make something found. I mean, the flip side is that there's so much more competition and there can be a sense of like all these voices drowning each other out. But um, I think that's where this question of discoverability versus publicity can come in. I mean, ideally the two work together, but another just sort of anecdote from my experience in terms of like, waiting for an event, you know, waiting for the time to be right, and then trying to bring an existing book more into focus is we, many years ago, published the paperback edition of, I have it right here, this book called Motherhood and Bondage, which is edited by, um, or it's a collection of letters that were sent to Margaret Sanger in the 1920s from women and some men asking her how they could either access birth control or what they could do for birth control or how they could find abortions. And these letters are completely desperate. It's like from 17 year olds who have five kids already. I'm not kidding. That's like one of the letters people are saying like, my body can't take another pregnancy. We cannot afford the children we already have. And so like reading these letters, I was just like, holy shit, these are so relevant now. And so I went in and I, I mean, this was a book that hadn't sold copies reliably in years. And I fussed with the keywords and 
you know, tried to enhance the metadata. And a week after I did that, which is about how long it takes for the metadata to trickle out, it started selling. And I was like, awesome. <laughs> I mean, it, it didn't sell a ton, but it sold. And then another similar story is that in 2019, we published a book of essays, which is really, really good, called On Our Way Home from the Revolution, Reflections on Ukraine, that are by a creative nonfiction writer from the Ukrainian diaspora who had been teaching English in Ukraine in 2014 when the, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right, but the Maidan revolution began that sort of presaged, you know, the current invasion. And so, you know, the book did, a, did fine, but she was a debut author. It didn't get, it kind of fell into a hole between publicists. It, um, arcs were being sent out like right before I came to the press and they're, it, so it didn't get sent out in as dedicated a way as maybe we would have liked. And so, you know, it got some reviews, but nothing major. But then when the Russian invasion of Ukraine happened, suddenly it was on a USA Today list of like essential books about the Ukraine, about Ukraine and started selling like in quantity. And I think that was another example of, yeah, just how something can hit after the fact, if it becomes relevant in whatever way. That was, sorry, that was a really rambling answer to make a brief point, but. No, those are, I think those are both great. I mean, it's. I like it's, anecdotes. Yeah. Well, it, they're il illustrative in ways. <laughs> just describing these things can't be. Yeah, those, that's, that's so fascinating. Um, and weirdly, uh, I mean, not weirdly, but just, I don't know. I find it, I find it all like strangely heartwarming, you know, like those kinds of stories. Like, uh, I don't know. I mean, I. I'm not in this for the money, you know, I like believe in, I, I believe in the sort of like promise of, of literature and I don't know. It's just, it's sort of, it's just like, it's just like special, right? Like I feel like in, in both of those cases, that's like a, sometimes like what is probably, you know, like at different times, like a little bit of an agonizing like pursuit, right? Like um, we all do sometimes complicated, tedious, like, administrative work and like planning and these sort of like grinding to to try and get these things out there and there that there is an element of it that is like that is that unpredictable seems to I don't know Hillary said invoked magic before uh I think is maybe a little bit more evidence of that right or some well in a way it's yeah. it's kind of a comforting backstop to small presses because we can't Jeremy and I talked a bit about this last week, like we can't compete with the lead times that the big publishers have in terms of getting their arcs. Like I have friends who've published novels with like Penguin Random House who got arcs almost a year ahead of time. And like, there's no way we, we can maintain that production schedule. And so that means that by the time we're able to get arcs out, which we aim for about five months ahead of time, you know, some of those big review spaces are already spoken for. And so the emphasis on having publicity happen right when the book is published or before is another sort of annoying thing that I feel like really disadvantages mm -hmm. small publishers, but that's another conversation. But yeah, this idea that there could be a long tail and that we have more resources now to get books out there in different ways, sometimes not even through something we're doing directly is comforting. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, one way that we started working with authors and publishers is trying to find things that could work, strategies that would work at the last minute. I mean, it's, I, for most campaigns, you, as Samara said, you really have to start four to five months out. 
And ideally at that point, you have a cover, you have the typeset interior, there's a website for the book that's already online. And these are the tools that sort of a publicist can use to start spreading the word. Uh, I mean, if you go on PRH's website now, you could find books that are going to get published April, May, 2024. <laughs> so, you know, they're really far ahead of the eight ball in that way. That being said, I mean, I guess my feeling is in the small press context, most of those really long lead media are not going to be in the picture, right? They're not, you know, there's not really, not really a possibility there. So you don't have to lose too much sleep over it. But what is important is those pre-publication reviews, like places like Publishers Weekly, Kirkus, Library Journal, Booklist, Shelf Awareness. I mean, just really making sure that those submissions are made properly with the right amount of time with as much information and maybe even able to do one round of follow-up just to make sure everything landed properly. Yeah. But yeah, the pre-pub reviews really interest me because in my experience, you know, they're, they're a pretty reasonable get. Like uh, Kirkus very frequently reviews our creative nonfiction. So does Publishers Weekly and Booklist. And it's hard to say like one of those reviews directly impacts sales in a measurable way, but those reviews get aggregated with the book's metadata. So like um, you guys were talking about Ingram on an earlier episode, I can log into iPage, which is the ordering interface for booksellers to see what they, and I do that to see what they see when they look for our books. And, um, if it gets reviewed in library journal or book list or whatever, it shows up on that page through nothing I've done. It just gets aggregated that way. Um, so I think that can have an effect anecdotally again, uh, at my old job at Ohio university press, we had a book reviewed in the New York times and I am 90% sure that that's because I FedExed a printout of the manuscript to, um, Lori, the fiction editor at Kirkus, and Kirkus gave it a starred review. And that's Lori, Lori Muchnick. But yes, Lori Muchnick. And yeah, so I, I don't know. I think those can make a difference. The other thing I noticed is that with library acquisitions, those pre-pub reviews show up in library catalogs and can affect um, how visible a book is to librarians for acquisition purposes. Um, I've sometimes looked at, you know, some of the big library systems will have instructions on how to bring a book to their attention. And they all say, to be a strong candidate for acquisition, it, you know, it most likely will be reviewed in at least a couple of these places. So this is all I realize we are, you guys have been so generous with your time. And also, I just I love hearing about all of this, like all these details, like, thank you so much. Um, and this last unit was such good information too for our small presses out there about our timing and our strategies. And I'd also like to shout out every writer or editor who's ever gotten a negative Publishers Weekly review that then follows them <laughs> around every website in the world, <laughs> um, which uh, is always a joy. Um, but you're in good company. There's negative Publishers Weekly reviews of so many good books. Mm -hmm. so, but that I, is yeah. true. <laughs> And also maybe if folks are listening from some of those bigger venues, maybe there's a thought we can all have together about reserving space and some of them for the smaller indie press books that don't have as much lead in time, you know, like what, oh, what right. are yeah. the collaborations that could I would love to yeah. hear from the New York Times about 
truly the best way to get our books on the radar. Yeah, we do like to to challenge, uh, invite, provoke people to email us. (laughs) Not a lot of takers so far, but I'm sure the the New York Times will be the first. Although weirdly, (laughs) when they have emailed us at the Poetry Center, it goes to spam, which is strange. Um, Wow, that's unnerving. (laughs) I know, we found one there that was like this, you know, like poor person in the New York Times trying to get us to send again. And it was just like in our spin. And I was like, Oh, so sorry. I do actually, yeah. I'm not trying to be like a too cool for school, small press. Like I totally, <laughs> I'm going to send you that now that I've seen it. Well, thank you guys both so much um, for you. talking with us today. Thank you. It was great.